Our Father, we do thank you for the beauty of this day. As we look around us outside, we see the snow-capped peaks, and we're grateful for your provision. And we know, Lord, that we are totally dependent upon you each and every day of our lives for not only the long-term sustenance, but for moment-by-moment existence. And we're grateful for the Spirit of God who dwells within the heart of every believer. And we trust you now, Lord, to speak to us today again from your word. Father, we acknowledge that uh, our instruction from the word of God comes through the Spirit of God, who makes the word understandable and applies it to our hearts. And Father, I pray that as we learn it, we will live it to be, as James tells us, doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, I trust you to bless each one of us this morning. I trust our fellowship around the word will be good. And I pray that throughout the Sunday school this morning, where in each and every class you will minister by your power to each heart, we think, Lord, of the fact that so many young people and children come to know you uh, during the Sunday school experience. And so we pray that that might be true for those here this morning that don't yet know you. We commit ourselves to you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us read from Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 9. Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden. And I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Last week we looked at the first eight verses and we saw the violence which came through the heart of a, re of a rebel as Cain destroyed his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifice was worthy and Cain's was not. And we saw that it was really the attitude of the heart that was the key to the whole matter. Cain was a man who wanted to do it his way and he insisted that God follow his way Abel was a man who yielded and did as God had commanded with a heart of obedience. Verse 9 of the passage that we've just read teaches us two things very clearly. First, the imminence of God, that is that God is here now. He is not, a, he is not just transcendent, he is not the deistic God who is far away having just set the earth in motion and expecting us to live by its laws, but he is here. And he is amongst his people. And also we see an omniscient God, a God who knows all things. He does not have to be instructed, even though often in our prayers, that's exactly what we do. God is involved in the everyday lives of you and of me. And he was involved in the everyday life of Adam and of Eve, of Cain and of Abel, and of the many other siblings that had been born by that time. Scripture tells us in Hebrews, and we've read it before, that there is nothing hid from the eyes of God. God sees all things, and there's nothing that we can do that he doesn't know about. And so obviously, he doesn't come to Cain and ask him this question because he needs to be informed. He wants Cain to admit what he has done. Now what's interesting is it appears from the passage we studied earlier that when Adam and Eve failed and sinned that God called them into account immediately. And so it appears God is doing here with Cain. He comes to him right after the act 
it seems at least from the flow of the passage, and calls him into account for what he has done. We, we have to view sin as a rapacious epidemic, and it needs to be dealt with quickly, and it needs to be dealt with decisively. Now, God is coming to him as a judge, and we get that through this passage, but at the same time, there is still mercy available to Cain. As we read the first verse or two of this particular passage. But Cain quickly reveals the extent of the hardness of his heart and of his rebellion by his answer to God's query when God says, Where is your brother? What he reveals and what becomes irrevocably clear is that he is of the seed of the serpent. Going back to the third chapter, there, there will be those who are of the seed of the serpent and there will be those who are of the seed of the woman. He clearly is of the seed of the serpent. He lies directly to the omniscient God. I mean, God knows all things and yet he lies boldly to God. Seems foolish to us as we look at it with hindsight, of course. I trust we're careful ourselves to be aware of God's omniscience. How do I know where my brother is? Am I my brother's keeper? These are oft-quoted words, are they not? I mean, we've seen them and heard them in other contexts. Well, am I my brother's keeper? My sister's keeper? My mother's keeper? My children's keeper? You know, after children grow up. This is the attitude of many. Am I my brother's keeper? This flies in direct opposition to the character of God and really to what is to be the character of a true Christian. The character of a true Christian is one who is his brother's keeper. I'd like to read a passage in Romans which contrasts to what we are seeing here in the attitude of Cain. And at any time when we have that feeling well, it's really not my business. It's not my responsibility. We have to remember that those are the words of Cain, who is the, of the seed of the serpent. In Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 9, we read what can be one of the most convicting passages of Scripture to a Christian. It teaches us something of what the true character of Christianity is. Character we don't see a lot of, even in the church today. We, we so often find church folk only to be different from worldly folk in that they go to church on Sunday and call themselves Christians. But what do we read here in verse 9? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to that which is good. Those are really strong words when you think about it. Abhor means to reject and back off with all that is within you, and to cling means to hold on tenaciously. These are words of extreme, and, and yet what we find often in, our, in ourselves is we kind of skirt what is evil, and, and we don't really commit ourselves often to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now those are the opposite words of the words of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Boy, would that ever take care of a lot of the jealousies that go on within a church environment, where one is jealous of the other person's ability in a particular area or wishes that he or she had that other person's talent or position or whatever it is. We are to give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. These are really strong words when you think about each phrase individually. And, and we compare ourselves to, to this. Do we contribute to the needs of the saints as, as God would have us to? That doesn't mean drop a dollar in the offering occasionally. It means that what we have is there and is available for those who have need who are of the kingdom of God. 
practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and yet on the other hand, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Wouldn't that take care of a lot of the division that occurs in churches? If we are really of one mind, if our mind is really focused on what the true purpose of the church is rather than on some nitty-bitty little political issue of some sort, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. We become cliquish sometimes in the church environment. And we have our own little group, and we don't associate with somebody else because they're viewed as a little bit outcastish in some way. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, that whole passage stands in such contrast to the words of Cain that we clearly see the, the, the vast gulf that stands between the righteous and the unrighteous, as it ought to be according to Scripture. It's interesting that in the passage in Genesis, not only does Cain lie directly to the face of God, but he implies that God has no right to even ask him the question. Why are you asking me? What business is it of mine? We discover as the passage goes on that Cain is so hard in his heart that God no longer speaks to him with, with mercy seeming to be available momentarily to be poured out upon him, but God does speak to him only of judgment. The voice of your brother cries out from the ground. Cain has stopped the voice of Abel, but Abel's blood speaks from the ground into which it fell. God calls Cain into account for his brother. You are your brother's keeper. Down through the centuries, thousands upon thousands will, fall, will follow in the footsteps of Cain, willing to shed innocent blood rather than submit to God. The human spirit in itself is so arrogant, so haughty, that in and of itself it refuses to submit to the one who has proven himself historically to be almighty. I mean, it's folly. But very little that we do in our pride is wise. Several millennia later, this same attitude, the attitude of Cain, will lead to the most heinous crime ever committed on the face of this planet. Let's look, if you will, at Matthew chapter 27. 27, 22. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. The enormity of the crime here. It's one thing to, to be willing to take the guilt upon yourself, but to curse your, your progeny, to curse all those who would come after you, by saying his blood be upon them too, is unspeakable. Now the blood of Abel was significant. The blood of Abel was important, but it does not compare with the blood of Christ. Abel's blood testified as to the crime 
that Cain had committed, but Abel's blood was not able to do other than that. But if we turn to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment and read at verse 22, as you know, if you've studied Hebrews, that one of the key uh, words of Hebrews is the concept of better, more excellent than. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel only spoke of judgment. The blood of Christ, of course, speaks of mercy. Abel's blood testified against the sin of his brother, but the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, we're told in 1 John chapter 1. What was to be Cain's punishment? Well, the passage we read in Genesis tells us that he was condemned to a life of wandering over the earth. Wandering physically, but of course, all the same time, wandering in his spirit, lost forever, it would seem. It appears that his doom is sealed while he is yet in the flesh. A little bit later, a few weeks from now, we're going to be in the sixth chapter of Genesis. Yes, truly, we will be there. Where we read these words, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. There's a point at which it seems that God says enough is enough. In the first chapter of Romans, three times we read, and God gave them over to, and then we're told the, their lusts to degrading passions, to depraved minds. God's mercy is everlasting, but it seems that there is a point at which we conceal ourselves against that mercy and harden our hearts against his love. Cain became, therefore, a walking warning to all who might be considering rebellion, to all who might be considering rejection of God's mercy. I'd like to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That is the ultimate fruit of the rejection of the mercy of God. When one dies in that condition, one has eternally condemned himself to destruction. Interestingly enough, we discover that Cain the farmer will what? No longer farm. Because God has sealed the soil against him, it says no longer will it yield its strength to you. Now already it's been difficult because leaving the garden, they had to go out where the thorns and the thistles were beginning to develop. And now, there is a special curse against Cain. Today we talk about those people who have a green thumb, right? <laughs> and those people who have a black thumb, or whatever you call it, when it seems like every time you try to grow something, it dies the next day. Well, so it would be with Cain. He would not be able to farm any longer because it would be a futile task for him. He was to be a vagrant. 
And the Hebrew word here, translated vagrant, means an unstable person. A person who in his character was unable to follow a straight course. He was condemned to be a homeless, aimless wanderer. The meaning of the Hebrew word behind wanderer. It's the same word which is translated elsewhere to describe a reeling drunk, someone who is totally inebriated and wandering and staggering and seemingly without a goal or a direction. Same word used here to describe what was to happen to Cain. He was ostracized from his parents, from his whole family, with exception, of course, of one. And he'd be launched on a meaningless and what would seem to be a purposeless existence. Of course, in God's economy, there's a purpose for everything. There's a passage in Jude which seems to give us a picture of this a little bit. Jude, verses 12 and 13. This is speaking of others who, in a way like Cain, well, in fact, it even says, well, let's, let's begin reading in verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And we, we talked about that when we read that verse last week. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. In the first century, the communion was usually practiced within the confines of what was known as the agape. It was sort of like a potluck that they held in the church service or afterwards, and the communion was often held as part of that. That seems at least to be the picture we get from 1 Corinthians. Caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly deadly uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, planetos, from which we get the word planet. You know, the planets, as the ancients looked at them, there simply were these bright spots in the sky that didn't conform to the other bright spots of the sky. The stars up there all seem to move, you know, in the course of the Earth's rotation and revolution in a certain pattern, but there were these one, certain ones that, that seemed to go in reverse and do funny little things that would later be called epicycles. Wanderers, stars that wandered. Same term here. For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Wanderers, not necessarily in this case, of course, physical wanderers. They may be just normal, everyday, everyday people in business suits with ties, going to jobs. And yet, in their spirits, they're wanderers because they're false teachers. Teaching that which is not true and calling it truth. So, they were, became vagrants and wanderers in their spirit as Cain did. He was a vagrant and a wanderer in his spirit, but in his case also he was condemned to be a wanderer physically, but of course he fights that. And as we read the next passage in Genesis, we'll see what he does to try to circumvent God's curse. Going back to the fourth chapter and looking at verse of Genesis, verses 13 and 14, Cain responds to all this and he says, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden. And I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. He has sorrow here, but his sorrow is for his punishment, not for his sin. He is not a repentant man. He's just remorseful that he's been caught and that the punishment is to him severe. He doesn't recognize the enormity of what he has done. Sin often is viewed by, by us even today as not that serious of a matter. Oh yes, if we were a mass murderer, we could view ourselves as pretty awful. But just because we gossip a little and lie a little and you know, cheat a little, and, uh, we don't consider that to be all that serious. But in God's eyes, sin is vile and heinous. And this man does not express any repentance whatsoever here. 
He does not turn to the mercy of God, which even at that moment, I believe, would still have been available. His life would literally become a living hell. You know, sometimes people look like on the outside they're really enjoying life. You know, they've got that boat and that home and all those wonderful things and a nice job and their kids all seem to be doing okay and you don't know the hell they're living inside until, of course, it explodes in some way. Cain might not have appeared after a while, particularly after he built his city and had his family made, have appeared to be a fairly normal, prosperous man. And yet he was a wanderer, vagrant in his heart. I think it's interesting that he who committed the first murder would be living in deathly fear of the very monster that he has turned loose on the human race. God showed him a measure of mercy by placing upon him or somehow giving him a mark. Commentators aren't really sure that uh, from the wording of the Hebrew, whether it's something placed upon him or something about him, some think even the city was, in effect, the mark. Whatever. Somehow God set him apart so that he would be protected or at least there would be a sign of vengeance for those who would attempt to murder Cain. Now, why would anybody want to have want to murder Cain. I mean, there is no yet written law of, of retaliation yet. You know, the, the lex talionis has not been put down anywhere that we know of at this moment. Yet already that fear is in his heart. Fear of being murdered himself. Let's read on. Genesis 4, 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. And now to Enoch was born Erid, and Erid became the father of Mahuyel, and Mahuyel became the father of Methushel. And Methushel became the father of Lamech. And Lamech took to himself two wives. And the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal. And he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He, had, he was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah... She also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech had said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech seventy-sevenfold. It would seem that Cain has sold his soul to the devil. And so he is forced to leave from the presence of God. And the word there which is translated presence of God is the exact same word which is translated for the countenance of, of Cain which had fallen. It's the Hebrew word panim which is face. So he is forced to flee, to leave from literally the face of God that which reflects who God is. We talk about the face. You know, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to recognize somebody by looking at the back of their heads. Now, some people you recognize because you know them and you know instantly who it is, and so you can see their face, although you're looking at the back of their head. But many people you don't recognize until you see their face. So, so the face represents the person, who he or she is, and who he or she is to us. And so the face of God, although it's an anthropomorphism, is, of course, a reflection of who God really is to Cain, to Adam and to Eve. And he ha he's going to have to leave from who God really is, which means he is separated from all that God rep represents. Now, it's true that God is omnipresent also. 
and God is everywhere, but it's possible for us, although God is everywhere, to leave the presence of God. By the hardness of our hearts and, and the rebellion that is within it, we can separate ourselves from God. Scripture teaches us that if we allow sin into our hearts as believers, we cannot commune with God in prayer. We might as well talk to the dog as to talk to God if, if we harbor sin in our hearts. The only prayer God wants to hear from us when there's sin in our hearts is the prayer of request of God for forgiveness, the confession of our sin, so that we restore that communication. It's not that God has left us, it's just that we are not in contact with that presence to be able to minister to Him and He to us and to be used of Him at that particular moment. We're told that Cain traveled eastward from Eden to the land of Nod. Now, the word Nod comes from the same word that we trans is translated wandering. It means wandering. To the land of wandering. So whether that's an actual noun referring to the name of a place or simply he went off to his wanderings, I, I don't suppose it really matters. It says he went east, and so it seems like it could be uh, you know, applied as a name to a, to a given region where he lived. I think it could be said, therefore, that he left. Now remember, the word Eden means delight. And we could translate nod as flight. He left the land of delight to go to the land of flight. The land where he could enjoy the presence of God to the land where no longer is the presence of God to be experienced by him. Although God was in Nod as he was in Eden, but not for, for Cain. He settled down with one of his sisters who became his wife. Now some who look at Genesis very superficially say, huh, this can't be. How could Cain have a wife? I mean, after all, who existed on the planet? Adam, Eve, Cain and Abel. But Abel's dead now, so there's only three people on the planet. So where does he get his wife, they say. Some say, well, it's, what we have to do here is, 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 is think about this, that probably those who adhere to this particular idea that, for example, the human race did literally evolve, and, and that uh, you know Genesis doesn't preclude the concept of evolution, and, and that this race of beings that does come from pro-council and comes up through all of, you know, Australopithecine and, and Pithecanthropus erectus and all the rest of this, uh, comes up to, to what become Homo sapiens. They say, well, God took this subhuman race and Adam and Eve were simply the two people that God put his finger on and put a soul in this primate, this subhuman creature, and made him human by putting a soul in this one and a soul in this one called him Adam and Eve. So rather than seeing a special creation rising from the dust of the ground and the one from the bone of the other, they see this as just simply God reaching down at some point and choosing two from this subhuman primate race and, and making them humans. And therefore what Cain did was go out and marry one of these subhuman things. I don't think so. The idea is totally foreign to Scripture. You'll find no Scripture that you know, gives an inkling of a door cracking open for such an idea. There are several factors that help us to understand why this is no problem at all, where Cain got his wife. First of all, we have to think, you know, some would be offended by the idea that he married his sister. But we have to remember that although sin has entered the human race, and that although Adam and Eve have become a fallen couple, that they are still living in near perfection. Their bodies are still so near perfect that Adam will live nearly a millennium. And certainly their genetic code, their DNA, has been basically untouched yet. And so from them will not come a mutant. From them will come a child who is, of course, not quite as perfect probably as Adam was at the moment of creation or Eve was at the moment of creation because sin has come, fallen in their nature, but physically their form and their composition is going to be pretty close to perfect. And so for Cain to marry one of his sisters is not going to, you know, cause the, uh, the replication of mutant features. 
and cause what you look down through the pages of history and you discover so many uh, royal families where you had literally idiots coming along and, and the so-called Habsburg jaw and other features which were reinforced by constant intermarriage within a closed circle. I mean, the, 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 the history of the 20th century has largely been the result, or at least in part for a good hunk of the world, the product of this very factor. The, the family which we call the greater family of Queen Victoria, had, 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 its blood was scattered through most of the royal houses of Europe. And probably some of you have seen the photograph of, of George V of England and Nicholas II of Russia, and they looked like twins. Well, they were related, they were cousins. And, and it was this, this blood mixing where you have the compounding of this factor called hemophilia that produces in the Tsarevich, the son of Nicholas II of Russia, this hemophiliac condition, which itself invites into that family the monk called Rasputin whose presence in the family had a lot to do with the hatred that, that came out and the revolution which broke out and the, and the bad advice that was given to Nicholas and Alexandra and as a result helped to precipitate the collapse of Tsarist Russia and to open the door to Bolshevism. Now it's not to say that had hemophilia not been in there at all that some of these things wouldn't have taken place anyway, probably not when they did, maybe in conditions that would have been less ripe for Bolshevism to take over. So we look at this and we say, oh man, that's bad. Marry your own sister? How gross. But at least genetically, it wouldn't have been a problem. Secondly, I think that, and this is all part of the first one, that some postulate that there was an existence of a water vapor canopy around the earth and that's what helped create the conditions which would later be precipitated as the flood and of, of Noah and that that of course served as a great filter which would have done far more than our uh, ozone layer is doing out there in filtering out cosmic radiation and thus greatly reducing the amount of mutation which would occur because cosmic radiation wouldn't be disassociating the little bases in the DNA uh, helix. And uh, so that, you know, there's no problem. Some say, well, it isn't the problem, really, uh, so much of marrying his sister as where would he have a sister? Well, we have to remember, again, Adam and Eve, I mean, they weren't committed to celibacy. I mean, they had Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel weren't the only two children born. They were just two of the children born. And, and they were the ones who become the actors in this drama. But there are others. And of course, there's a passage later we'll come to it says, and to Adam and Eve were born other sons and daughters. And, and they were not born after Cain slew Abel. How old were Cain and Abel at the time of the death? Well, 20, 40, 60, 80, we don't know. It, it doesn't say. I, I don't think it was very soon. I think they had grown up and, and lived a long time together. 60, 80 years old, and they wouldn't have been, you know, as we are today when we approach 60 and 80, we begin to really notice it. Uh, Cain and Abel at 60 and 80 would have been like youths of today. We have to realize Adam didn't walk around when he lived to be 960 or whatever it was he lived to be. He didn't walk around like uh, Rip Van Winkle for 800 years of his life. You kind of have to prorate his life, if you will. And I think he was, well, we're, we're told that Seth is born when he was 130. So I, you know, I think he was still fertile probably into his late hundreds. <laughs> Six, seven hundred, eight hundred, who knows? Poor Eve. <laughs> Eve certainly bore a child every four years because that's, you know, in a total natural situation uh, with lactation and all the rest of it that goes if you nurse the child until it's four, which they do in some societies, that's the outside. That's very conservatively speaking, every four years, probably every two years. 
So Cain probably had a whole raft of sisters to choose from. <laughs> Brothers, too. So I don't think there's really any problem here. Of course, we have to realize, what option did he have? If he was going to be married, he had to marry one of his sisters. Unless, of course, he, he isn't the firstborn, which is what the Scripture seems to imply, and, and he comes along later, and there already were other brothers and sisters that had married and had children. I don't think so. But, of course, the second generation wouldn't have to face that problem, would they? The second generation could marry cousins. Actually, I guess it's the third generation. But they could marry cousins because the brothers and sisters had already married and produced children, so there would be these cousins, and the cousins could marry each other. And I think probably that's the way, of course, the flow would ultimately be. Now, we have to realize the biblical prohibition against incest had not been written yet. And we have no implication in the Scripture here that God had said anything about that yet. We know what, what is it about Abraham? Who did Abraham marry? His half-sister, Sarah. Now, a half-sister, I guess, is better than a full sister, but you still have this genetic... Uh, compounding here to some extent. And yet Abraham became the father of the Israelite race. Most certainly, Cain did not find his wife in Nod. He took her with him. And the chances are he was already married to her before they went to Nod. Because think about it for a minute. If you were one of the sisters of Cain, and this guy comes up to you and says, will you marry me? And you know that the blood of your brother is dripping off his hands. Would you marry him? Probably not. Now, of course, it could be that there were amongst the sisters those who had wandered as far from God as Cain had and become as hardened in their hearts and would have chosen to do so. But probably he was already married before he went to Nod with his sister wife. Now, Another question which is asked is, why does God allow Cain to live and to propagate a civilization? Why does God not zap him and take him out? I mean, after all, there are others around, there are other sisters and brothers to, to propagate the human race. Who needs Cain? Well, I think there were at least two reasons, which are given for you there on, we're on page 17 now, in case you didn't. Follow along. Uh, number three, A, throughout Scripture. Now, let me back up just for a second. I remember years ago talking with various uh, professors in a, in a secular environment, and, and they had a lot of trouble with the Old Testament because to them they view God as, as just a wrathful God who's out there trying to, to vindicate his, his, his pride. And they don't see the God who is really there. And I really doubt and question that such a person has, well, obviously they haven't read the Old Testament with understanding, but have they even really read it? Because from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Malachi, you discover that one of the primary themes that leaps out of the pages of the Old Testament is the mercy of God. Over and over again, his mercy shows forth. I mean, even in things like giving the Amorites another 400 years and keeping his people in captivity in Egypt. So the Amorites will have that 400 years to turn, to repent of their ways. Going to the land of Assyria, Jonah, and, and preaching so that they might repent, and they do repent. And, and for maybe a century and a half, there's respite there for them. Mercy, mercy of God. Yahweh is portrayed throughout the Scripture as a God of mercy. Now, whether there was any hope left for Cain or not, God only knows at this point. However, God's mercy would have an impact upon Adam and Eve and upon the brothers and sisters. And there would be born those persons who could, although they were descendants of Cain, know of the mercy of God and turn to him. This principle seems to be displayed to us 
In one of the parables that Jesus gave in the 13th chapter of Matthew, Matthew 13, verse 24, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Whether the mercy that God would give would ultimately impact Cain any further beyond this moment or not, it certainly impacted the, the wheat. It certainly impacted Adam and Eve and Seth and those that would follow to know that God in his mercy allowed Cain and his descendants to go their way and in effect shake their fist in the hand of sovereign God and, and yet survive on the planet, although, of course, living their own hell within. This is God's mercy. And whether uh, it would transform Cain or his descendants or not, it certainly would transform the attitude of Adam and Eve and the descendants of Seth to know something of this merciful God who didn't just like Zeus of the Greeks with his thunderbolt zap everybody instantly uh, who, who dared to uh, challenge his authority. I think you and I can be thankful that God is a God who operates that way. I don't know when you came to know the Lord as an individual, but some of us may have lived lives somewhat less than desirable before that moment. And even after being Christian, sometimes we do things that if you were God, you'd probably say, fry him on the spot. <laughs> but that's not God. I think a sec second principle, though, might be seen here, too. I hope you don't think I'm reaching here. I, I see these myself, anyway. Romans 7, 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Sin, I believe God allows it to happen to run its course, to go from the seed to the ultimate fruit of sin, to reveal the utter depravity from which it stems, to reveal its heinous, satanic origin and its awful end. The value of God's commandment, of course, in Romans 17, it's saying the value of God's commandment is seen in contrast to the utter awfulness of sin. And, and you look at the commandment of God and you put it against the black background of sin going, becoming more and more vile as you read in the first chapter of Romans, and then you see the value of the commandment. And I think by allowing the, 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 the environment uh, within Nod or whatever you want to call this, the land of Sumer, the land of Babylonia, where, wherever ultimately it would develop, of course, after flood, that the love and the mercy of God would be seen to brilliantly shine against that vile background. And it's sometimes it takes an awful thing for us to realize how wonderful is the grace and mercy and the love of God. You know, as the scripture teaches us, it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because life is seemingly good for him, at least in his material ways, and he has no worries. He simply says, tear down the barns and build larger ones. But when things become vile and evil and, and when everything seems to be stripped away, it's that point when the heart finally realizes it has no hope without God. And that's why God allows what seems to be tragedy often to come. Because it takes that for us to get on our knees and recognize who we are and who he is and of our need for him. 
And sometimes that happens even to Christians. Now, we, we, we dare not distort the scripture to say that you know, because we believe in God and because we're his children that God owes us a good standard of living and God owes us good health and God owes us this and God owes us that. No. God gives us love and mercy because he is a God of love and mercy. And he allows into our lives those things sometimes which seem hard and we wonder why God, and yet we must believe it's there because there's something he wants to do in us and he wants to do through us. He wants to change us and he wants others to be changed as they look at us. And so we need to, to acknowledge that and recognize that. James chapter 1. I don't know what we'd do without the book of James. Well, without any of the Bible, we'd be in big trouble. But James seems to answer so many questions so often. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, well, I'm being tempted by God, so I have an excuse. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it brings birth, gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's the darkening sky of the spiritual environment. As the little sin begins to magnify and depravity spreads, and you ultimately have this, this dark, dark world. Again, as C.S. Lewis calls it, Thulchandra, the silent planet. All the heavens sing together, but there's this dark, silent planet called Earth where the prince of evil seems to rule. He does not rule, we know. Our God reigns. But God has given him a time in which he has certain authority. And many, such as Cain, submitted to him because he was of the seed of the serpent. You and I are to be of the seed of the woman, that is, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. The light of the world that shines in this darkness. And so God's mercy is displayed here, and yet at the same time he allows the evil to grow so that it can be seen in such stark contrast to the light of his word and the glory of his face. Well, I think we'll stop there. We're going to look at the, the children of Cain that were born, Enoch, and then specifically Lamech. Six verses are committed to Lamech. Something must be important here. It's not just in passing because one verse there jumps over 150 years at least. And then you have a whole six verses just attached to this man Lamech and, and to a poem. It seems that he has written or at least spoken. And so we'll look at that next week.